Welcome to the Evolution Exchange UK podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges that they are facing. I am Adam Berget from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and I help businesses connect with top tech talent. And today, Jamie Downing will be your host. Well, thank you guys. Just like to um, say, you know, thank you for joining us on the podcast. So I'm Jamie. I'm going to be hosting this podcast today. The work that I do is connecting businesses with talented people uh, in the space that you guys are in, within data science and engineering. I'm joined today by you guys as a fantastic panel to talk about the future of AI in data science. Um, so before we get into the discussion, I'd just like to make a couple of introductions. Um, so Alex, would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself and your role and the company that you work for? Sure thing. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, so my name is Alex Milanovic. I'm the lead data scientist at Tracer. Um, so Trace is a diamond traceability bl uh, blockchain platform. Uh, so we work with 3D scans of diamonds and videos and that, and that sort of thing. So it's quite cool. Um, yeah, a bit about me. I've been super passionate about data science. I've been working within deep learning since TensorFlow was was sort of an alpha uh, quite a few years ago. Um, and so, yeah, just really passionate about deep learning technology. Cool. Not a problem. Um, if we can move on to you, Jacob, if you could tell us a bit more about yourself and what you do. Sure thing. Uh, so I'm Jakob. I'm working at... A consultancy fair called Mesh AI now. It's a consultancy that sort of focuses on enabling clients get more value out of the data. So anything from making data more accessible to using AI to extract more value out of it and a bit more background on me. And I think in general, I like solving difficult problems. And so this is kind of how I got into data science. And originally, I'm just trying to solve technical problems. And now I realized that just all of them isn't enough. It's usually you need to put a lot more work where the solutions to be usable. So that's kind of my focus area now. Cool. That's great. And last but not least, uh, Isaac, would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself and the work that you do? Um, sure. So my name is Isaac Castro. So I'm the lead data scientist of Intelligence. And uh, what the company what does is to to bring um, the traditional forms that, that uh, many people for health and safety, for, ins for instance, that they do, that they pass and try to do a scan and check all the things that can be wrong or or the things that are kind of black, and how actually transform this into a video form. So all the information is there. So what I mainly do is work on the computer, the computer vision side and NLP, which is actually what, I'm, what I actually like the most um, and the deep learning area. And try to kind of make the, those videos to be more searchable, more easier to use for the customers. Cool. No, that's great. No, thank you very much. Um, so it sounds like there's a bit of a crossover um, from what I can tell with some of the work that you guys do. So I'm keen to get into the topics. Um, Alex, I know you'd mentioned um, the question around choosing a certain cloud provider for all services instead of self-hosting some infrastructure on-premise. That was a question that you'd raised. Just keen to get your, um, you know, your kind of take on that, reasons for that question. And then, um, yeah, be keen to get the other guys as well. Alex, do you want to maybe tell us a bit more about that? Sure, yeah, sure thing. Um, so I've been quite a big proponent of on-premise for, for quite a while, specifically around GPU compute. So if you look at prices for AWS and some other cloud providers, they, they charge really, really high prices for on-demand GPU. Um, so to the point where it's actually cheaper to buy a server and just throw it away every month than it is to to rent it in, in, in a cloud provider, in, in, in some cases. Um, so what I've liked to adopt quite a bit is, is a hybrid approach between cloud and on-prem. But of course, there are multiple ways you can choose to spec out a server, multiple different cloud providers you can use. So the question is around uh, the motivation for, for picking a specific cloud provider and, and, and the, the decision to go for that versus versus on-prem. Okay, cool. That's a good question. Um, 
maybe start with you, Jacob. Have you got a take on this at all? Have you got any any opinions on that? Yeah, um, I think it's sort of to be a typical consultant. It's a very situation dependent uh, question. Um, yeah, I think yeah, in some cases, you know, if it makes economic sense to host your own uh, service, then that's fine too. But I think what cloud gives you is that sort of quickness and scalability, um, easy to deploy uh, at the cost of some extra expenses at times, and also. Uh, you probably lose some control over what you're running, the, whatever compute you're running. And also, potentially, there's a sort of skill set requirement. So running your own server requires certain skill sets. Uh, companies, I guess, might not have the capability in-house. So that might sort of push them towards uh, more cloud computing. But at the end of the day, I think it's a bit of a cost-benefit analysis where, you know, on-premises, if, if you think on-premises is going to give you a competitive advantage, then by all means, go for it. But I guess going for hybrid is also the issue of, you know, the integration between what's on the cloud and what's running on your premises and so on. Cool. Oh, that's great. Uh, Isaac, have you got any thoughts on this topic that Alex has raised? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's true. I mean, we, we were using a lot at the beginning, um, yeah, cloud computing. It's true that um, it, it gets quite quite expensive. That's that's true. If you actually use it quite a lot, eventually it's better or cheaper, let's say, to actually host it uh, on your own. But uh, what cloud computing gives you is, um, for instance, resilience. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's more difficult if if you have a server and gets broken, it's gonna be a, quite of a mess. You will need to have actually your own copies all over the place to actually try to make it more resilient. And also the throw cost is usually cheaper and the time for scaling. So you can scale up your own server. It take time, but you can do that. But the scaling down is a bit of an issue. If suddenly you don't have that demand and you want to reduce the cost, it's much better actually. You have it on the cloud, you can always reduce it. Or you have it on your premise and you can't because you have paid for it. No, that's great. Not a problem. Um, so I just wanted to move on quickly to um, one of the topics that Jacob had raised. That's okay with you, Jacob. Um, you had a question around, uh, I'll read it out. So with the rapid development of generative AI, how do we implement gen AI based products commercially, taking into account the risks of such solutions? So do you want to maybe give us a bit of context to that, Jacob, and what your kind of, you know, thought process of being behind the question? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think with ChatGPT being released to public, everybody is talking about it. And the same with uh, various companies that we see. And I feel like in general, there's two types of companies. One, that um, they don't know what generative AI is, but they heard ChatGPT is cool and they want to use it. They don't know what it is, how to use it or anything. And there's the other type of companies which hear a new technology, get scared because they don't understand the risk fully, and then say, we can't, we're not going to touch any generative AI unless we know everything about it. Um, so I think here I'm trying to get, get everyone's opinion, I guess, on how do we navigate that between the two extremes. And I guess my view on that is, you know, the value case for using generative AI in general is, is incredible, um, but it needs to be approached um, intelligently. So we need to acknowledge the risks involved in it and figure out how do we mitigate them and important, how do we monitor that risk, those risks going forward. So probably we shouldn't jump in into the pool without thinking much about it. But, um, you know, once we start using a little bit, come some kind of way of um, measuring the risk and then reevaluate periodically to see whether there's any other use cases then. Cool, not a problem. Alex, is this something that um, you've got a take on, on um, what Jacob's, you know, James' question was? Yeah, 
I'm I'm quite a big proponent of using tools like ChatGPT. They can they can be super powerful, and I, I use them quite often. Um, but if from a business perspective, there's always the the worry of leaking any sensitive or commercially you know important information. So if, if a tool you don't know what it's going to be spitting back to the cloud, um, a lot of companies are quite wary of of using it, rightfully so. Um, so so there are some other tools which will run locally, and and they're not trained on any any sort of license um, violating content, which is also quite good. So it's about picking the right tool. Um, but then the other thing to add about generative AI is there's a lot of stuff out there that sort of comes across as quite a bit of a gimmick and doesn't really have very commercially viable applications. Um, so, you know, if we think back a few years to style of transfer, you have a picture of yourself, a picture of a Van Gogh painting, and, and you sort of convert yourself into a painting. I mean, it's, it's cool, but does it really provide much value? Um, but I think in, in the last few, almost the last year is when we're starting to see generative AI being actually useful in commercial applications. So things like ChatGPT are obviously being used quite a lot. Um, and then the other challenge is finding good use cases for very generalized models. You know, GPT is a very general model. A lot of people don't know what to do with it and they don't understand its capability. Um, so if you can maybe build other services around it that use something similar to you know, GPT, um, that could provide quite a lot of value commercially too. Okay, cool. Uh, Isaac, what's your take on um, generative AI and what are the kind of pros and cons and even risks that you see to um, these kind of solutions? So, yeah, sure. Um, so I actually, um, I like it and I, I kind of promote them. So I think it's a very useful tool. And the problem is the way they have, they are now people are seeing it is more like um, trying to replace jobs and trying to or trying to actually use it for everything and anything at the same time. So they, they believe it can solve absolutely any problem. It's not that true. So the, the thing here is to try to, as uh, both Jacob and Alex have said, is you need to actually know what are the problems they can solve and how actually do you need to mitigate the the, the problems that can happen. Um, I can see two different issues. One is more into the uh, customer or the or the user side. If we, if we, I'm talking about the company side. So if the company is going to use it, it can have some risk for the company itself, or for instance, the leaking uh, information, but also for the customer of the company, because it may be not be like um, fair or is biased towards something that is uh, not what the actual model or the actual um, purpose of the company was. So it may actually be a bias model. Um, these two things need to be actually mitigated and, and normally you're going to need um, someone, data scientists that actually do the work and, and understand the problems and understand how to solve them. This is something that yeah, people need to need to get around that. Okay, cool. I mean, that, that ties in quite nicely to a question that you had, um, Isaac, which was around, you know, kind of how data science roles and jobs would change and how skill set may change due to advances in AI. Is that something um, maybe you want to give a bit of a context to, and then we'll get the other guys' takes on that? Yeah, I was uh, on that direction as well. And about because it's true that the AI is evolving, and there are actually many, many trends. And, and of course, the part of ChatGPT and the, the larger language models in general. And the tools and skills that people are actually gathering, or the, the, the ones that are needed at this moment for data scientists, may not be the same in the future. So right. from my point of view, I can see that this can be a little bit of a shift 
for the data scientists to move towards more the business side. So at this moment, I can see that data scientists as a math, programming, and business uh, concepts. So you have like three models in your brain. And, and those skills um, at this moment are more into the math programming. Uh, you can see like job specs or, or what people are talking about. And, and it's believed more than the business side. And I believe, for instance, it can move towards that. So I just wanted to see what people actually think about that. Well, cool. I mean, just to go on to you, Alex, is that um, something that you've considered how maybe um, you know, what Isaac's question was, how data science roles may change due to advances in AI? Is that something you've got to take on? Yeah, it's, you know, machine learning, deep learning is obviously a very fast paced and, uh, and quickly moving landscape. Um, and you know, there tend to be new sort of trends in the space. And of course, generative AI is the, the latest and greatest trend. Um, and I feel a lot of data scientists feel pressure to be experts in every domain that sort of comes along. Um, but if your, you know, your interests don't necessarily align with the latest trend or your business isn't really using it, um, you know, you don't really need to feel that pressure to, you know, are you going to be left behind? There's still a lot of research and other, you know, other aspects of machine learning and deep learning. Obviously, being being very multidisciplinary is is, is helpful and having a good overview is, is good. Um, but you know you don't necessarily need to be carried away by by all the latest trends. Okay, cool. Um, Jacob, is that something that you see um, potentially a change in data science roles and skill sets due to these advances? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, so I guess the bottom line for data scientists, something that won't change is you know ability to score business value in data and ability to solve difficult problems and then sort of present those results uh, somehow convincingly. Um, but I guess the if, the, if those bases don't change, but I think the practical things will change. So things like, you know, there's new models coming up all the time. LLMs is a completely different approach to problems than the t- typical sort of deep learning that we had so far. So yeah, I think I agree with everything was said in terms of, you know, the, the, the trends that are there. But I think fundamentally at the end of the day, it's about getting value out of data. And that's not going to change. Skill my, skills themselves might change. And also I think the... In, the role is kind of fracturing in a way. I think if we ask maybe five, ten years ago, data scientists was everyone from doing analytics, data engineering, ML engineering, and data science roles. Whereas I think now those things are spread, splitting into individual roles as well as maybe more of like a product data scientist and sort of research data scientist roles, uh, which is, I think, will be more uh, bigger split like that in the future based on the okay. needed for the two things. Yeah, cool. I mean, I was just going to say, Jacob, that's uh, that ties in quite nicely to a question that you had around, you know, kind of given the rapidly changing AI landscape, what it means to be a good data scientist now and what it could be in the future. Um, is that something that you can maybe give a bit more clarity on and then we can get the other guys' takes as well? Yeah, um, I think I gave most of a good answer for the previous question. Uh, but Sorry. We think, no, no, I'll get... Um, but I think... In general, and you know, it's a very fast-pacing environment. And if you look yep. at a lot of job specs, the list just gets longer and longer of the things that a data scientist supposedly needs to know. Um, and okay. I think, like we've pointed out, the trends kind of move quite fast. So it's not necessarily about keeping track of trends; it's just being good at getting value up there, like I said, and also being able cool. to almost use like Lego blocks to use existing solutions to build new ones. It isn't to start from scratch. I think that's the one there. Cool. Cool. Uh, either of you guys, um, Alex, Isaac, anything else to add on that one? Or should we move on? Yeah, no, I very much agree with the echo on that. So, 
you know, the, the way I see developing data science is you're looking for what's the state, state-of-the-art research within a certain problem you're trying to solve. And you take that, you apply the data sets, and there are fundamental concepts you need to learn as data scientists. Um, and that isn't really necessarily changing with trends, right? The, the, the structure of the work is still the same. It's finding the latest research, you know, improving it, adapting it, and maybe publishing research if, if you're lucky to. Okay, cool. Isaac, anything to add on that one? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that, but it's true also that, um, well, there are, there are two things, right? One is that the the part of the, the business, well, the, the idea of data scientists at this moment, um, they are little by little like kind of splitting up. So uh, data engineering, data analysts, machine learning scientists, deep learning scientists, uh, they, they are breaking now. And the data scientist is still kind of um, a little, little bit of a jack of all trades for all this. So I think uh, the skill set will also split because they will little by little specialize more different kind of roles for different kind of set of actions or tools that they need to actually do business sense. Um, apart from that, from the point of view of AI, I think um, it may happen, uh, I don't know, but, uh, but it's true that uh, moving into different kind of tools of, um, uh, so it will move maybe towards the, the the use of APIs more than actually creating many, many of the models. Um, because if you have like a, like it happened at the moment actually with ChatGPT, there are many NLP problems that are going to be better solved with directly using the API than actually training your own model. For some specific like summarization, for example, or even topic uh, detection. Those two are actually quite well done in that sense. But, oh no, sorry. Good call. Okay, no, that's great. Um, Jacob, I was just going to ask, um, one, of, one of the questions that you mentioned was um, what can organizations do to minimize the churn between data science, POCs, and productionalized solutions? Is that something you'd be able to give us a bit more um, context on and um, give us your take as well, perhaps? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so I guess working consulting, I see this quite a lot. Is There's a lot of companies that hire data scientists. And the scientists do a bunch of analysis, present it, and then propose like, oh, we can scale this solution, we can scale this solution, but then there's no appetite to actually scale many of them. Um, so I guess the question then is why that's happening and what can we do to actually get many of these POCs that you know might be really good value, but for some reason just never get scaled. And I think in my mind, um, some of the issues is around how we get the value. So firstly, while we do the initial analysis, there's a lot of cool uh, insights that come out of it. And a lot of business uh, stakeholders will get a lot of value from their insights themselves, but won't see much value in the ongoing, you know, whether it's machine learning or some other uh, less capability, they won't see much value in the ongoing one. So it's about how do we identify value? And also importantly, how do we then track it over time? And another issue is about how easy it is to scale a solution. So if the data scientist comes out with a brilliant notebook, that's still probably going to take another three months before it can be productionized and so on. So how do we do the early experiments in a way that we can then easily reduce the, I guess, the hurdle of going from a POC into a fully productionized solution? Cool. No, that's great. Thanks for that. Uh, Alex, have you got a take on that at all? Yeah. Um, so I've actually worked for a couple of companies now where they've spent a lot like a considerable amount of time and effort on, on developing a POC just to have it canned within you know a few months or a year it happens a lot and it's quite a big problem and I think 
you know, there, there are probably a lot of causes, but one pretty big cause is lack of identifying a good product product market fit. So a lot of the time your business won't really know exactly why you're building a certain product or the you know the customer base isn't very well understood and that sort of happens a lot. So I feel like if, if product market fit is really well understood, then that tends to happen a lot less. Okay. No, that's great. Um, Isaac, have you got any thoughts on Jacob's question as well? Yeah, yeah, actually I do. Um, so I've seen that a lot actually as well. Um, so different to Alex, well, I'm going to talk about something different. I mean, um, so the, so for the, from the point of view of the business, um, one thing that is actually important is to have a, to have a process. So normally someone, they need to approve, like, uh, for instance, there are, um, architects that they need to actually approve all the system and all the, how, how it's going to be uh, integrated into the, the company business side. So having a good process where you know who is going to need to approve it and how it's going to pass that actually accelerate quite a lot inside of the business from the point of view of uh, what jacob was asking about the company passing from the poc so this the, the data scientist itself so that is usually uh for example us in app intelligence what we do is we have um backend process so uh we have a tool our backend, for instance, um, some mobile app, let's say. And what we do is to attach every individual model to different parts. Uh, what we create is Docker containers and everything is always containerized. I'll test it and then plug into it. Um, to do that, it's actually passing from POC to the actual um, uh, deployment is usually kind of quick. We, we don't spend too much time because we have kind of the whole process and setup so that we have the testing and everything in a quick way. So once you have the model, you just put it inside of one class that we have that has the, all the things to pass to the to how the backend understand it. And just yeah. pass the containerize and that's about it. Cool. Okay. Now, I'm, uh, obviously, I'm not technical as you, you guys, but I know that you did have a question. Uh, I'll read it out now. Um, it may actually tie into what you've just been speaking about, but if not, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on this as well, guys. So is that you'd said, um, with the development of large language models, which require um, powerful computers and large memory banks, do you think data science will move towards using those resources instead of um, training custom custom models? Um, Alex, is that something that you could uh, maybe give us a take on or you got an opinion of? Yeah, just, just a couple of points on this one. Um... So, so, so uh, I was at a talk at AWS a few months ago, um, and and the chief evangelist from uh, Hugging Face was there. And I think what one thing they're really sort of doing quite prominently is they train really really large models, so potentially a hundred billion parameter model, and then they'll encourage the use of a smaller model. So let's say a seven billion model that's fine tuned on a specific specific data set or specific task. And nine times out of 10, that will perform better at that task than the general model, the larger general model will perform uh, also in that task. So um, yeah, just just using more more specific fine-tuned models does tend to help. Um, but then my second point around this topic is the just the sheer cost of training such a large model and how it's only really large companies, you know, Google, Microsoft, so on, that have the actual resources to, to, to buy 10,000 or 100,000 GPUs in a cluster, train the model. So it's a little bit sad, and, and in my mind, it becomes a little bit restrictive if you want to work with these really, really large data sets and these really large models. Um, I, there are some projects um, that are helping combat this. I, I forget the exact names. Um, I would re recommend having a look. Um, 
They are more efficient models that are smaller. Um, you can still fine tune them on even a single GPU and they'll still be fairly capable. Um, so, uh, you know, if the research in that area progresses, I think that'll be quite, quite good for the industry. Well, uh, Jacob, is that anything, uh, anything you'd like to add on that topic? Um, yeah, I think Alex will cover it very well. Um, yeah, I think going from scratch is so expensive that, you know, very few people can afford it. Uh, which also, I think, raises an interesting point around research, where there's zero reproducibility, because who's going to spend extra 10 million quid to test whether somebody's research actually does what it says it does. Um, but yeah, I think mostly will be about fine-tuning models for a specific tasks that individual users have. And I think, yeah, uh, that what Alex was saying. Cool. Uh, Isaac, is there anything else you'd like to add on the question that you had? Are there any other points you'd like to make on that one? Oh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, um, so the, the idea that I was having is because I can see that many companies now are trying to get more into the API system. Not only really just a lar large language model, but there are many companies that they actually offer APIs and they are trying to create those models, of course, for very, very specific, like, kind of task is um, kind of hard. But it's true that for many problems into the computer vision and MP area, this is more than other types, even time series as well. They, they are kind of good APIs for very specific, very generalistic. And of course, what they are saying, many of the, most of the, these large models are more into big companies because they're very expensive to, to actually do it. And that is a pity, but at the same time, they are putting the things quite cheap. So it, it may happen that the three or four companies actually get a kind of, it's not really a monopoly, but a poly coming there. Um, that could, something that could happen. Okay, cool. No, that, that rounds off the topics that um, we discussed in advance of the recording. Guys, is there anything else that um, maybe you'd like to get anybody else's take on before we wrap things up? Are we all good? Cool. Uh, okay. Just Sorry, question. go ahead. Of course. That's uh, fine. I guess, uh, we talked about, you know, how LNNs are different and, you know, how the risk of it are slightly different. I guess, to what extent do you guys feel like, I guess, the risks of, uh, you know, data leakage and so on are different now compared to any other sort of AI service that are out there now, you know, people use, you know, outsource their forecasting models to AWS or whatever. I guess what about LNMs is different, do you guys think? So just to make sure I understood the question correctly, so you're saying, so, so the risk around using a large language model, giving it your data and having that data be exposed somewhere else in a place you don't trust? Yeah, yeah I guess in general, any sort of risk involved using them, how are they different to any other AI product that's than before. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to who's who's hosting the service, I think, uh, and, and how much you trust them. So if it's something you can run locally, that's good. If you understand what you're running locally, that that's even better. You know, if it's just a black box that you, you don't know what you're running, that can be just as harmful. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're using an API, you don't know what's being you know used. It, it is hard to sort of trust the model. I think a lot of people maybe don't trust Facebook. So their, their large language model, you might think, oh, you know, what, what is this data going to be used for? But maybe you trust OpenAI more, so you might be more willing to use ChatGPT. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of my take on it. Yeah. That... Oh, Isaac, have you got a take on that? Sorry, go ahead. Yep. So, um, I actually, yeah, I have um, had that question before, well, kind of that concern before for some of our customers. The thing is with OpenAI, they didn't trust it very much, to be honest. Um, but uh, OpenAI now, for instance, is trying to move the things to AWS and provide a service that is completely encapsulated so that it's completely private. They're trying to do that to actually assert 
that concern. And probably some of the other companies will try to move towards that to actually offer privacy, since that is usually a quite a big concern for many customers. No, that's great. Cool. So I'd just like to say, before we end, thanks so much to all the guests that we've had on the, po- the podcast recording today. So I'd just like to thank Alex from Tracer, um, Jacob from Mesh AI, and Isaac from Vintelligence. If you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role yourself, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Adam Berges and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at adam.berges at evolutionjobs.co.uk or visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.